Scribbler's Corner is brought to you by Brad Kuhn and Associates and the Jacks by Jacks Literary Arts Festival. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Scribbler's Corner, the podcast about writers and writing, broadcasting from River of Grass Studios, where two rivers meet and you never know who will tie up to the dock for a chat and a fresh cup of coffee. I'm Darlin Finch Kuhn, but my friends call me the Scribbler. Katie Yoakum was born and raised in Atchison, Kansas. After graduating from the University of Kansas with a degree in journalism, she moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where she has lived ever since. Her novel, Three Ways to Disappear, published by Ashland Creek Press, won the Siskiyou Prize for New Environmental Literature and was a finalist for the Zank Books Disquiet Open Borders Book Prize and the UNO Press Publishing Lab Prize. In researching the novel, she traveled to India, funded by a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation. In 2019, she received an Al Smith Fellowship Award for Artistic Excellence from the Kentucky Arts Council. She's also received grants from the Kentucky Foundation for Women and served as writer-in-residence at Kimmel Harding Nelson Center for the Arts, Crosshatch Hill House, and Playa. Her writing has appeared in Newsweek, Salon, Lit Hub, American Way, The Louisville Review, and elsewhere. Her short fiction has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. She holds an MFA in writing from Spalding University. She lives with her family in Louisville and serves as Associate Director of the Low Residency Graduate Writing Programs of the School of Creative and Professional Writing at Spalding University, where it's her great good fortune to work with writers every day. Well, Katie, we feel like it's our great good fortune to have you here with us at River of Grass, so welcome to Jacksonville. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, and what a what a beautiful place this is with the river out back and the storm with the, the lightning going off. So it's a real Florida welcome. Yeah, we arranged some natural fireworks for you. And uh, so if the listeners hear some uh, thunder boomers out there, that's that's what's going on. We got a beautiful Jacksonville uh, evening storm for Katie Yoakum. Katie, you're on book tour. Tell us what you've been doing for the last four days, running around the state. I have been running around the state of Florida. Uh, started in Hollywood, Florida, with a reading at a coffee shop down there. Went to Books and Books in Coral Gables after that. Um, on Saturday, I did two readings, one at the uh, Herndon branch of the public library in Orlando, the Orange County uh, library system, and then on to uh, Largo, Florida, where I did a reading at Creative Pinellas Galleries with Wordier Than Now. And today was the grand finale here in Jacksonville at Chamblin's Uptown, where I um, did a reading and signing, and uh, it's been a whirlwind. Wow, I'm exhausted just hearing about it. But I was there for the Chamblin's reading, and uh, you knocked it out of the park. It's a beautiful book. So interesting. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. He's got that gorgeous blue tiger on the front. And um, the title of the book is Three Ways to Disappear. So I'm intrigued. Talk to us about what that 
is all about, what that means. So the title came about at first pretty intuitively. I think when the words Three Ways to Disappear all came together for me, the meaning was maybe still a little bit in flux. I know that the three came from the fact that the the family that's at the heart of the story had three children. And disappear came from the fact that the story involves tigers, endangered tigers that are, you know, in real danger of disappearing from the face of the earth. So that's where disappear came from. And I put them together. I came up with three ways to disappear. I thought it sounded nice, but it the title has really changed and grown and maybe deepened a little bit for me over the years. And I've asked myself at different times, you know, what does it mean to me now? I'd say the first way to disappear is physically. The tigers are in real danger of disappearing off the face of the earth. Um, There's certainly hope for them, and that's part of what my book is about. But there's that that possibility of physical disappearance. And then there's the, the fact of emotional disappearance. The family in my book, the two sisters who are at the heart of my book, are a little bit broken. They they there was an old family tragedy. There was a they had a brother who died young and that rift has kept them apart for years and followed them into adulthood. And so they've really disappeared emotionally from each other and they're trying to find their way back. And then the third way to disappear, I think, um, actually is is spiritually and that's a I'd say a more subtle theme through my book, but it does kind of interweave itself or thread itself throughout. So so that's the answer that resonates with me now. If you ask me in three or four years' time, I might, I might have a different answer for you. Right. Now, it sounds like you've been involved with the writing of this book or the development of the story for quite a while. I have. I have. Uh, it's um, been... Well, the, the genesis of the book goes all the way back to 2004. Uh, I had a childhood obsession with tigers that I thought I outgrew until 2004 when the tigers at the Louisville Zoo, where I lived, had a litter of cubs. And this old childhood passion just reignited uh, big time. And uh, I started going to the zoo all the time and visiting the tigers, watching them grow, just kind of soaking up their gorgeousness and and the, the fun of watching these little cubs. And after about a year of that, I, I started to get the idea for a novel. So, so I really traced the roots of the novel back to the novel itself back to 2005. And At that time, I started doing some research about tigers. I started learning about tigers in the wild, and I immediately found that uh, they're in big trouble, really. As I say, it's not, they're not beyond hope, but they've they've had a terrible last century. A hundred years ago, there were about 100,000 wild tigers living in Asia, all, all across the continent of Asia. And after a century of um, hunting with improved weapons and human population growth and poaching and illegal trade in, in their body parts and, and habitat loss, that number was down to less than 4,000 worldwide. And, and you know, that's, a, that's an enormous loss of, um, of 
their lives over over the course of a century. So my initial, you know, passion for tigers, which grew out of this place of total joy, gained um, an edge to it. You know, with the greater knowledge came some some sadness and, and a lot of concern and worry. And those two kind of conflicting emotions, the love and the joy and and the the worry for them, the fear for them, combined and, and created this kind of sense of longing out of out of which my novel grew. I see. This is probably a really bad time because I know that you are leaving on a plane very early tomorrow morning from Jacksonville to mention that um, River of Grass where you're sitting at the moment is about five minutes from the Jacksonville Zoo uh, where we have some beautiful tigers and uh, I could actually, <laughs> if you'll delay your flight, we could uh, uh, take you over there in the kayak in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that so much and I think that just means I'm going to have to come back if you'll have me. <laughs> uh, we would love that, we would love that and I, I suppose at this point you're missing your family so <laughs> we better let you go home. Time to go. But yep. um, yeah, we're not, we're not too far from the tigers ourselves. Um, you spoke a little bit about the dangers that the tigers are facing um, due to the encroachment of man. Um, how dangerous are tigers uh, to men? I mean, I, when I think of tigers, I think of, uh, you know, hearing about man eaters and things like that. And there's, um, there's a situation like that in your novel. Um, and isn't there some kind of really close interaction between tigers and people's uh, people, excuse me, in the uh, in the reserve where you were? Well, um, it's a really kind of a complicated issue because um, I think the story that you're referring to is the fact that in the the tiger reserve, Ranthambore National Park in Rajasthan, India, which is where my book is set. There is a temple to Ganesha at the top of a clifftop fortress, uh, a thousand-year-old fortress. It's very beautiful, and every Wednesday pilgrims come in and um, climb the, you know, climb up the the road up the side of the the cliff and go to the go to the Ganesha temple, and they're walking right through the forest where tigers live, and for the most part. Uh, Really, almost universally, there are there are not problems with uh, these uh, worshippers walking through the park. Um, only one time, uh, at least when I was there in 2006, when I was in India in 2006, at that time I was told that only once had there ever been a problem with uh, a tiger attacking someone who was in the park. And the way the story was told, it was really almost not even the tiger's fault. Mm -hmm. She had been separated by this steady stream of people from her cubs. Mm -hmm. But in in the larger sense, when you have uh, people living in close proximity to tiger territory, which uh, very much happens in India, the national parks are, generally speaking, surrounded by villages of, of farmers, rural people who are raising livestock and, and uh, raising crops. 
And they are, you know, within tiger territory, and they are sometimes going into the park for, for to forage for firewood, uh, firewood, or um, for to to um, uh, get water. And it, sometimes the tigers will come out of the park and maybe attack livestock, or maybe even occasionally attack humans. Mm-hmm. And so it does happen from time to time, and unfortunately. Of course, when that happens, the people feel that they have to defend themselves, they have to defend their livestock, and so you can you can really run into some conflict there. Sure, sure. That's, that's um, as old as man and uh, beast. Um, right. Know, it's, it's always been that way, and we just think now, because we're so civilized and modern, that... Um, you know, tigers shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't be uh, still attacking people, but uh, we're, they were definitely there first, and, and we move into their areas. And uh, right, well, that's exactly right. I mean, tigers are generally speaking solitary animals, and they have their own range. And um, when you have a tiger population, especially a growing tiger population, which is, of course is what we want and what the conservationists want. So um, to have a growing tiger population is fantastic, but if the territory, the habitat, isn't also growing, then you almost inevitably are going to have human-tiger conflict because the tigers, um, the young tigers who are growing up and striking out on their own have to disperse. They have to find their own territory. Mm -hmm. And if all the land in the park is already taken they're going to spill out into the unprotected lands where people are and there's it's like there's likely to be trouble sure we have a similar situation in uh, Florida with bears uh, lots of uh, bear sightings in um, neighborhoods you know suburban neighborhoods and oh, so I didn't realize uh, that. yeah people are always up in arms uh, lots of uh, bears found on golf courses for some strange reason they like to go there and climb trees I guess but anyway so uh, that that's interesting Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, you talked about in your your novel and also at your reading today was uh, the poachers um, going after different uh, body parts of the tiger what's that all about why in the world I mean I could see taking a tiger as a trophy if you were a hunter or something like that that's understandable what is this taking pieces parts uh, all about right so the tiger's body parts are valued for different uses in um, traditional chinese medicine and unfortunately that means that there's a market for different parts of the tiger's tiger bone is valued as a painkiller Tiger, tiger's claws, uh, different different organs, different parts of the tiger are are valued as some you know for their medicinal um, qualities. Um, it's that value has not necessarily been proven scientifically, and I would say even if it is true that taking tiger bone can help ease your pain, I would say it's not worth it to. Um, to poach endangered species, to, to rely on endangered species for that kind of uh, medicine when there are other alternatives. There are, yeah. There yeah. are plenty of other alternatives. And, you know, there are also other uses of tiger body parts, you know, supposedly mm-hmm. as 
aphrodisiacs. Um, it's it's not a coincidence that the Sanskrit word for tiger is Viagra. Yeah, I found that fascinating. <laughs> you wonder where the names of medicines come from. And, mm. and now you uh, know. <laughs> got a tiger in your tank. Okay. <laughs> to, to poach an old uh, advertising <laughs> slogan. Um, so now we've sort of danced around the... the um, really fascinating part of all of this is that you didn't just research tigers down at the local library or look them up on the internet. Um, you actually went to India and spent some time there. So talk about that. You actually went to the Tiger Preserve and tell us about some of your experiences there. I did. I realized after starting to write the, the novel and you know, drawing on my imagination as best I could, I realized I was really out of my depth and that I couldn't just kind of guess my way into writing a novel that would would feel realistic or that had a chance of, of really conveying the experience of humans being around wild tigers. So I went to India, I, I applied for a grant, and I, I received a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation that funded my trip. So I went to India for three weeks, and I visited three different tiger reserves, the first of which was at was Ranthambore, which is where I decided to set my book, and that's partly because it's so beautiful there. It's, it's just gorgeous. It's a dry deciduous forest so it's not desert but it's it's also not lush uh, but it's a beautiful landscape very kind of rocky and lots of cliffs and then um, it was um, uh, used by by um, a sultan and well actually by by a number of kings uh, about a thousand years ago as a hunting ground and and um, there was the fortress there there are if you drive around Ranthambore, the national park, you, you'll come up across, you know, a, there's a summer palace at the edge of a lake where, you know, a thousand years ago, the mm. the royalty would would stay cool. In, it sounds magical. It was yeah. magical. It was mm-hmm. absolutely magical. And this landscape full of these old ruins is also filled with all sorts of wildlife not just tigers, but uh, different kinds of deer and wild boar, monkeys, and all the birds you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a beautiful, beautiful landscape filled with life. And I was lucky enough when I was at Ranthambore to have a really wonderful guide who was able to show me the tigers and the other animals and and birds in their natural habitat and he was really wonderful at at hearing things i couldn't hear he would hear a tiger roar you know off in the distance and he could kind of triangulate and figure out where the tiger was and Mm -hmm. and we would ride off in our open jeep and get close and and have sightings and and the tigers that ran the board didn't um, seemed to mind the jeeps. They didn't pay a whole lot of attention. They were pretty habituated to them. So I didn't feel that we were intruding too much on, on their territory. But how, the How open was the jeep and how close were you getting? <laughs> we could get close in an open jeep does not sound like a goal of mine personally. <laughs> well, um, the tigers seemed to really just ignore us in the jeep. Oh. So we could... We could get, you know, within 
a number of feet. Wow. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure I would say close enough to touch, but almost close enough to mm. touch. So Amazing. I would definitely have been scared if I were on foot to be that close to a tiger, but this, the Jeep seemed to provide some sort of magical armor, even though it was open. Mm-hmm. You know, the tigers just ignored us. Wow. So, and uh, I also wanted to say about that, you know, your question about my time in India, that my guide was smarter, much smarter than I was, because he didn't just show me the park and the animals, which is what I thought I was coming to India for. I thought that was the the sum total of what I was coming to India for, basically. But he was smart enough to, to take me to the village, to a couple of different villages on the outskirts of the park, and to introduce me to people who lived there, people who were farming or, or herding animals, and, you know, making a life on some some pretty poor land. And dealing dealing with life without very much margin um basically there's a lot of poverty a lot of lack of education and seeing people and meeting people and talking to people in person who whose livelihoods um conflicted really with the tigers sometimes for basic resources was really illuminating i was able to develop more empathy for People who, you know, on paper, it, it's easy It's easy to blame people who are, you know, in conflict with the tiger and, and to, uh, to, to think that they could find a way to, to you know, not, not have that problem. But the fact of the matter is there was not a whole lot of choice in the matter for, for, for the, these villagers who are just trying to make a living. Right. Trying to... Um help their families survive the same as the tiger is trying to help her cubs come up. Now, you were talking about um, some of the uh, interaction that you saw with a special um, mother tiger. You said she was a sort of a celebrity in her own right in India, and um, you actually saw her with her cubs. Tell us about her. I did. Her name was Muchley, which actually translates as fish. She was named after (laughs) um, a marking on her face that Mm -hmm. someone thought was shaped kind of like a fish. And she, even when I was there in 2006, when she would have been maybe seven or eight years old, she had already started to become famous. I think she had been uh, featured in a documentary, and and so I, I I had a you know an idea that she was was well known and and well regarded, um, and I was fortunate enough to see her um, quite a few times during the week that I was at Ranthambore, and she was at the time raising um, two cubs that were about 14 months old when we were there. So they were kind of like in that teenager phase. Mm-hmm. They were they had some independence from mom, but not not full independence by any means. They didn't yet really know how to hunt. In fact, I even um, was it, uh, we had a remarkable sighting while I was there, and that was uh, one of the the young the 14 month old cubs had captured a cheetle fawn, a, a deer, uh, an infant, and the cub had captured it, um, but didn't know what to do with it. And so we watched them together, and neither of them really seemed to know what was going on. And it was clear that we were watching an animal that was trying to learn 
how how to live, how to how to be a tiger, how to hunt, how to make a living for itself, but hadn't quite gotten there yet, and still needed mom. And um, years later, um, I, I I found years later that that Muchley had really grown in fame after I left Ranthambore, after I decided to make her the starring tigress in my novel. I, I wrote about her. I, I fictionalized her. I, I included some scenes that are directly from the experiences I had in the park, but I also made up some scenes and, you know, had a few things happen that just came from my imagination. Sure. But um, only after the book was published did I find out just how famous she had become in the intervening years. And you had a quite a thrilling experience that you were telling us about earlier where um, your... Uh, the fame of the tiger perhaps ended up uh, causing the um, your book to get reviewed. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact order of details, but I don't need to because you're going to tell us about that. Repeat yeah. that story that you talked about at the reading today where suddenly you were startled to find out that... Um, you were some. You and your book were somewhat famous in in India itself. <laughs> so thrilling. It was so unexpected. What happened was I um, decided the day that my book came out. So it, it was published on July sixteenth. That's the pub date. And that morning, I decided after all those years that I would see if I could find my guide, if I could look him up on social media. And I just thought, you know, it would be really neat for me to reach out to him and say, you know, I'm sure you don't remember me, but I came to Ranthambore all these years ago to research a book, and now the book has finally been published. So I looked him up on Facebook, feeling pretty sure that I wasn't going to find him, and he was right there. He was the the (laughs) third name on the list when I typed his name in. And I reached out to him. I sent him a direct message, and I I said essentially what I just said here. You won't remember me, but I've written this book and it's out now. And much to my surprise, he wrote right back and he said, I know, I read about it in the newspaper. <laughs> and I, for a second, I just couldn't imagine what he meant. And then he sent me a picture of himself holding up a copy of the, the newspaper in the town where he lived, uh, uh, a city of um, about 100,000 people, very close to Ranthambore National Park. So it's the front page of the newspaper, and it's it's in Hindi, so I can't read it, but there's my picture and there's my book cover on the front page. And so um, my guide, his name was Vipul, had seen this, had read about me, and so he knew before I got in touch with him that this was going on. Wow. So I was really shocked to to uh, see this newspaper coverage. And then the next day, um, the story got even a little crazier because his nephew who lived in Jaipur, which was the nearest really big city, sent me a photograph of the front page of the Jaipur Times, which, which is an English language newspaper. And Right there on the front page was a huge picture of Machli the Tigress and a big headline about um, U.S. author remembers the Queen of Ranthambore. 
And then some, you know, in giant type, some pull quotes about how I had seen Machley and fallen in love with her and, and found her presence just electrifying. So it was, uh, it was an article about my book and about the fact that I had written about Muchley, but really it was a celebrity article about Muchley. <laughs> and I loved it so much because, well, first of all, obviously it was thrilling to have my book get coverage in India. Absolutely. But more than that, it was thrilling because I had, had loved Muchley, had loved the, you know, my memory of Muchley for you know more than a dozen years at this point and she she really means a lot to me and to realize that she had become such a celebrity in in India in the intervening years that she would get this you know massive front page coverage in these newspapers i don't it just made me so happy it made me so happy to know that in India there were a lot of people who remembered her so fondly and and you know just hold them hold her in their hearts the you know the way that I do sure sure it's a beautiful story I'm so happy that that happened me Um, too on so many levels as as a writer but also as a human who cares about tigers that's that's fast fascinating and fantastic yeah it really meant a lot to me yeah I can tell You have some people in your book. <laughs> I do. There are humans in yes, my book. Yes, there are not humans. Just tigers. <laughs> so, um, talk to us about the story, the the two sisters and the brother, and uh, the relationship with their mother. Just you know, give us a hint uh, so that we can uh, get our thirst for the story. Right. So, this is a story of two sisters who. Um, They're from an American family, but they were living in India when they were children. And they lost their brother in a a, basically a tragic accident. Um, He was, uh, he and his twin, Sarah, were seven years old, and and he died suddenly and and tragically. And the family really came apart at that point. The parents end up divorcing. The children are, the mother takes the children back to America. And the echoes of this family tragedy really followed them into adulthood and the wounds really never quite heal. The two sisters go on to live very different lives. Sarah, who was the twin to to Marcus who died, goes on to live a really um, kind of globe-trotting, risk-taking life as a journalist. She's always off to the next war zone or the next site of a natural disaster following the stories and and living a a fairly dangerous life and and a very footloose life that keeps her very disconnected from her family of origin. Meanwhile, her sister Quinn, who is the older sister who feels somewhat responsible for the death of her brother, Quinn is living a much more quiet life. She's now herself the mother of twins who are seven years old, the age that, that the twins were when Marcus died. She's um, and she's wrestling with a lot of fear because her children have reached that kind of terrifying age. And she's she's struggling with that a lot. She wants to protect them. She knows she has to protect them. And she's afraid she can't. And in a lot of ways, for me, that sort of parallels the um, the responsibilities and the 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 journey of a tiger family. I mean, to raise cubs to adulthood is a very, very fraught passage 
for tigers, um, really for, for any wild animals, but it was the tigers that I was was looking at. But the story, um, as the story opens, uh, Sarah tells Quinn that she's finally decided to leave behind this globe-trotting, risk-taking life. And Quinn has a moment of great happiness when she thinks her sister, has, her little sister, is finally going to settle down. But she finds out she's wrong. She finds out that Sarah's real intention is to go back to India, to work in tiger conservation, to kind of stop being the journalist who drops in to write the story and then leave before the, you know, the, the end of the story plays out. She's decided she's going to basically follow in her father's footsteps and try to do some real good in the world on the ground. And she's going to do that in India. And even though she doesn't say that she's going back to kind of try to heal the family wounds, that's kind of an unspoken intent there. And the story plays out from there. Sarah goes off to, to India, and, and Quinn is left behind at home. And from a world away from each other, the two of them are moving toward trying to heal that, that rift that developed so long ago. Oh. Would you like to read some of uh, the book to us so that we can... Hear some of your words, just a just a few pages, perhaps. Sure, I'd love Good. to. Here's a copy that you signed for me earlier, and you just choose whatever portion you like. Maybe maybe the first couple of pages from the beginning. Sure. Why don't sure. yes? Why don't I read from the beginning? And I think that way I won't have to set. Well, I did just set it up, but <laughs> I won't have to set it, it up anymore. Okay. Great. So the book is told in alternating voices between the two sisters, and we start out in Quinn's voice with the first chapter. In the year after Marcus died, their mother stopped loving people one after another, her minister, her tennis coach, her friends, daddy. On a day dripping with the end of the monsoon, she clicked shut the brass latches on her daughter's suitcases and supervised as Ravindra loaded them into the car. In the courtyard beneath the people tree, Daddy clutched the girls to his chest. Quinn, at eleven, was the responsible one. Sarah, at eight, the remnant twin, widowed by Marcus when he died. If widowed was the word for it, which it wasn't, there was no word for it. Thin mud soaked their shoes as he kissed their cheeks and begged them not to forget him. It was a terrible thing to hear him say because it opened up the possibility that they could. His voice had gone high with pain, which embarrassed Quinn for him. She didn't think men were supposed to feel that much. Mother pulled the girls away, leaving their father to stand alone in the filtered sunlight, arms dangling at his sides as if he didn't know how they operated. Daddy was a doctor, the reason they lived in India, and India, according to Mother, was the reason Marcus was dead. Daddy's mouth curled down, and he cried silently as his daughters watched. Behind him, Aya wept, rhythmic and soft like singing. Beyond Aya, the watchman stood. The courtyard, a chessboard, the adults, the game pieces, isolated in their separate squares. Aya's weeping turned ragged, and Quinn and Sarah ran and clung to her until Mother pried their fingers from Aya's damp turquoise sari and pushed the girls, stumbling and crying, into the car. Their shoes muddied the floor mats, but Quinn didn't care. Ravindra opened the wrought iron gate and nosed the car into the inchoate, horn-honking flow of Delhi traffic. 
In the back seat, Quinn turned around and watched their home grow smaller. Before it vanished altogether, she raised her hand to it and said goodbye. Goodbye to everyone and everything and everywhere. Goodbye to Daddy, to Aya, to every friend, enemy, household staff member, shopkeeper, school teacher, gymnastics instructor, swimming coach. It seemed easy to Mother. She had shut down her heart. But she still loved the girls. The proof was that she took them with her. Wow. You know, I was thinking about that word disappear and how, you know, two little girls through no fault of their own and and with absolutely no control over it are just suddenly lifted into the skies and taken out of their life. They they disappeared. And uh, wow, what a hole is left for the people who love them. Right. I think for me, the fact that it happened that way has a lot to do with the fact that it never healed. Mm hmm. So right. they were they were given no choice. They were not asked. And they had to leave behind their father, whom they loved so mm. much. Unimaginable. And their world, yeah. their world, really. They didn't yeah. know another world. Yeah. And so then they're taken to Louisville. And Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, just disgraced my entire uh, <laughs> time that I was there. No, no. Louisville. <laughs> Spoken like a Jacksonville native. <laughs> um, it is a beautiful book, and I, I hope everyone will uh, will buy it and enjoy it. I want to switch gears with you for for just a time because it's it's so cool to have you with us. You are a person who not only is a, a writer in your own right and, and very skilled at it, but um, you run. Um, part of the most wonderful writing program in the country <laughs> and um, I know because I attended there and um, I've also traveled around the world with you I think we were figuring out we'd been in seven seven different countries together yeah and um, you've gone to a lot more mm-hmm. um, I haven't always been able to go with the uh, the Spalding uh, program but um, I wanted to know what, because you've met so many writers and you've been around very famous writers, you've been around new and aspiring writers, you've been around people who weren't very good at it and just tried real hard. <laughs> so you've, you've met a lot of writers, in other words. And my question for you is, um, now that you are one and you've been on book tour, um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers or for people who are are new at it and are picking up that pen or sitting down at their keyboard what would you say to them or what would you say to yourself a few years ago when you were just starting out great question that's such a great question I would say stick with it I would say this is going to be a it's going to be a long haul but it's also going to be a long love affair so stick with it. Settle in. It's not going to happen fast. Uh, it doesn't for most people. I suppose I suppose it might for a few, but for most of us, it takes a long time. It takes years. But give yourself over to that. And the other thing I would say is is learn every way you can. You know, read read books that are the kinds of books that you want to write. 
read books about the craft of writing so you can start to add tools to your toolbox. Go to conferences, go to writing retreats, go to any sort of a workshop or um, a class that you can get your hand on and learn from other writers because, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful art form and a wonderful um, craft and there are so many things that you can learn in terms of in in terms of technique and in terms of becoming more skilled at structure you know you might not be able to learn how to have an artistic bent you know that might just be an internal um you know a quality of someone but you can certainly learn how to write you can learn how to become a better writer i think a lot of writers i was certainly this way um I had been told like, oh, you're you're a talented writer. You have talent just from, you know, just in school writing essays or whatever. But to have um, to have a, you know, a, a flair for writing or a natural talent for writing, as many of us do, will take you a certain distance and then it won't take you any farther. Because what will happen is you'll be able to see that you've written something that really, really works and that's fantastic. But then you'll see you've written something that really doesn't work, but you won't know why. You won't have the words to describe to yourself what's not working, and you also won't have the tools to fix it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely say educate yourself because you it's possible to learn those tools. It's possible to to learn the the vocabulary of it and the the um, the the tools and to elevate your writing um, oh and then the third thing obviously is just read 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 mm-hmm. read read mm-hmm. which you know for most people who like to write I think that's a real joy and mm-hmm. I, just one I would encourage read read everything when you say read 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 um what comes to mind right now who, who are you reading or um what would you suggest if you, if somebody said Katie, what should I read? Oh, my gosh, that's an impossible <laughs> question. I just got you in trouble with all the writers that you <laughs> don't mention at this point. Right? You really so, did. Yeah. You really okay. did. Well, let's see. Let me let me try to answer that as, as best I can. Right now I'm reading a book that's actually about 10 years old by, um, by an Indian writer named Amitav Ghosh, oh. who's a wonderful writer. Um, and I'm reading it because I, I picked that book up back in 2005 when it was published, when I was just starting to write my book. And um, I realized it had been sitting on my shelf for about 14 years now, and it was time for me to read it. So uh, it's called The Hungry Tide, and it's mm-hmm. set in India. And like my book, it would it could be described as environmental fiction. And I'm loving it. I'm just loving the journey. But Oh my gosh, you've asked me such an overwhelming question. Well, I'll withdraw the question, but that that was a wonderful example. And um, coincidentally, you met a wonderful um, uh, writer from originally from India, right here in Jacksonville. He lives in Jacksonville now, named uh, Sarab Homi Frasis, who has become a dear friend of Brad and and mine. And um, uh, he has written a book called Go Home, 
which uh, you haven't read yet, but I am here to tell you you're going to enjoy that one, too. I can't wait to read that. Yes, um, he was um, kind enough to come to my reading today, and uh, by the end of the night, he he had a copy of my book, and I had a copy of his book. (laughs) So I'll be reading that really soon, and I really can't wait. And now we were trying to get him to translate that article that that was sent to you. Did did that ever happen, or was... uh, Right. So he was able uh, to look at the, the, you know, I had done a color printout sure. of a photo that was sent to me on mm-hmm. Facebook from my guide in India. Okay. Um, and the photo was a little bit blurry, but it was a, it was a picture of the front page of the newspaper in, in mm-hmm. Hindi. And, um, you know, I held it up just basically saying, look, here, here's uh, the front page of the newspaper, but I have no idea what it says. And he was <laughs> a little from, voice from the crowd, <laughs> a little voice from the crowd called out and he was able, you know, even from a distance to mm-hmm. identify um, the words in the in the headline. And, and uh, later on, um, he took a closer look at it. And the the picture was pretty blurry so he wasn't able to read the whole article to me but he could uh he was able to translate the the headline and the subhead and as i suspected it was all about how this writer had written a book about muchly (laughs) and um so it was i think in the same you know along those same lines of you know just the the happiness that the celebrity tiger had been recognized again that's so great so great, and it's it's just amazing to me that no matter where you go in the world, you can find uh, people who care about the things you care about and who uh, come along with the tools that you need. You know, you have this article, and then here's someone who can actually uh, read it. <laughs> that was that <laughs> in, was kind of incredible to in, me in the uh, you know. Uh, international city of Jacksonville. <laughs> so, no, that was a fantastic moment. You know, I was I, the last thing I was expecting yeah. was a voice from the crowd to come <laughs> to out to translate it for you. Exactly, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, I wanted to uh, have you just talk for just a moment because, again, a lot of people who listen to us are um, beginning writers, and you gave. Um, a little story that I want them to hear if they weren't able to get to Chamblin's today um, about the fact that you had written an absolutely beautiful, wonderful, um, matchless manuscript (laughs) of 400 pages. And then you found a publisher who said, love the story, but a hundred of these were, I mean, a hundred of these pages <laughs> pardon me not a hundred words a hundred words are easy a hundred pages have to go so you had to cut 25 percent of your novel how was that katie how much fun did you have oh that was kind of a wild story because here's how that here's how that went down mm-hmm. um i had entered my book into a contest um that uh, was for environmental literature. So I thought, you know, I had a pretty good chance. This is, you know, my book is on that topic. And my book ended up winning the prize. Um, And a lot of times if an unpublished manuscript wins a prize, the prize is publication of the book. But in this case, in sort of an oddity, the prize wasn't publication. So I had these publishers who publish, you know, in my area and, um, you know, my subject matter area. And I knew that they loved the book. 
But they weren't saying to me, you know, we'd love to publish your book. And I finally asked them straight out, you know, why why weren't they offering me publication? And that was the point at which they said, well, we really love it, but it's too big. It's too big for us to even consider. And not only did they say that, you know, the manuscript needed to be cut 100 pages, but they said for them to even take another look at it and consider it for publication, it needed to be 100 pages shorter. So in other words, I needed to do that work to even have the chance to be considered for for publication. But along with that kind of daunting note, they gave me some really wonderful editorial feedback. Um, At that time, the novel had a lot of point of view characters, and they told me to cut it down just to to the two sisters, Hmm. whose story is really at the heart of the book. And as soon as I read that feedback in that email, I knew that it was the right feedback for the book. It was the right next move for this manuscript that I had been working on for years now. And so I took it as a challenge. And um, coincidentally, and um, you know, serendipitously, part of the prize for the, the contest that I won was a month-long writing retreat at Playa, which is um, an artist retreat center in the high desert of Oregon. So I took the first half of that month, and I took my 400-page manuscript, and I cut it down to 300. And in doing that, I relied a lot on my background as a journalist. Um, I, I I have plenty of experience cutting my own words and, and cutting things down. Now, not to that extent, uh, <laughs> uh, but I was able to take it as a challenge, and I was able to um, use you know, the kind of the journalistic tools that I would use to cut, say, a, you know, a thousand word article down to 500 words, I was able to apply that on kind of the macro scale and and cut the um, the book down. And, and um, it, it involved a lot of recrafting things because there were chapters that I didn't want to completely lose. So I would rewrite them from the perspective of one of the sisters so they could stay in the book. Ah, so they were in the voice of someone else and you had to suddenly change the perspective. I too. did. Wow. I did. That it, was a challenge. It was a real craft challenge. Um, but it was also uh, kind of exciting. It was... it. it I, I enjoyed the challenge, I guess I would say. I mean, I won't, I won't say I enjoyed all of it. I, I was very sad to lose some of, the, um, some of the scenes and some of the storyline that I lost. But in the end, I have no doubt whatsoever that it's a better book. It's a better book, and it's a book that I'm proud of and I'm, I'm happy with. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that really, really smart editorial feedback that just felt right to me. Mm-hmm after so many years yeah it's it's a wonderful thing when you've just spent so much time on something and you know that as the athletes say you've left it all on the field (laughs) and you just don't know what else you could possibly do to make it better and then someone wise with fresh eyes comes along and says you know I'll take this and we'll share it with the world if you'll do you know these three things Mm -hmm. and you look at it and you say of course why didn't I think of that you know and oh yeah that's exactly it yeah in all those years why didn't I think (laughs) why didn't I know this but it it you you become so immersed and I I had a very similar situation I I guess you can tell that I'm relating to it so heavily in that in that uh there were just a couple of things that 
just were clunky and weren't quite right. And people had looked at it with me, you know, over and over. And then, you know, this this editor, Joan Leggett of Twisted Road Publications, came along and said, uh, you know, there are three places here in the book where uh, you've made the same mistake, and I'll, I'll tell you what it is. And I actually told her, I did not. <laughs> and she pulled out the book, you know, the, the manuscript, and showed me and said, here's where you did that. And and uh, like you, I, I thought, well, I can fix that. That's a, that's a Sunday afternoon writing you know, project. Yours was a little more extensive, but mine was, mine's a short book and (laughs) I didn't have to cut a hundred pages. I had to change, um, uh, point of view in a couple of spots. So Mm -hmm. it's a, it's another thing where, um, you know, point of view is tricky and getting, getting it just right is hard. And, um, she read it and I did it in an afternoon. She read it and said, let's do the book. And so, and that's the most wonderful feeling in the world. It's like, wow. I, I knew it, I knew it needed something. I didn't know what. And and then you get that help. Okay. I'm a little bit envious of your story. <laughs> well, I didn't get to go to Oregon and sit up there for weeks. So, you know. We, that's true. That was a pretty great experience. And, you know, speaking of envy, I have to say, you have, and at least had, <laughs> the best job in the entire world. I have always said, man, when I grow up, and I'm a lot older than you, but when I grow up, I want to have Katie Yoakum's job because one of the th- not only just working with all the wonderful writers and everything, um, and you are one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Oh, well, so, I, I mean, you, you make it look easy, but I know it's not easy. <laughs> but um, we used to go on these writing trips to uh, around the world and then uh, we'd all get on the plane to go back home to the United States and you would uh, hop on a different plane and go off to next year's destination because you had to find you know just the right hotels and the the right um, art museums and the right uh, right. writers homes and I would think oh my god I want to be her so badly well darling I will Uh, tell you a secret and that part of the job only looked glamorous. Yeah. I And I know people aren't going to believe me, but it, it really wasn't. You know, when you guys got on the plane to go home, you were tired and you were ready to go mm-hmm. home. And actually, so was I. Yeah. So, um, okay. But I, I'm, I feel a little better. But I'm also not going to complain too much. But mm-hmm. yeah, you and I met each other at Spalding mm-hmm. University at the Low yeah. Residency MFA program there. Mm-hmm. And I'm still there yeah. years later. And so. it still changes lives and, and makes um, good writers into great writers. And uh, uh, it just is the best place. I love it there. And I encourage everybody to check it out <laughs> and go and meet the amazing Katie. <laughs> um, we've got maybe a, a minute or two left. I'm looking at the... the uh, tech guy over there my handsome Mm -hmm. husband and uh i can't read your writing (laughs) i think he's telling me you have two minutes in two minutes or less um is there anything that i forgot to ask you that you would like the world to know about you your book your program tigers Oh, gosh. You know, I think I actually um, would like to take just this last little time to talk a little bit more about Spalding because we sort of alluded to it, but we we um, didn't really um, drill down on it very much. And and it is a program that changed my life. And and I and I think yours, too. Um, You and I were students in the low residency MFA program there. And um, the big 
kind of news out of out of Spalding in the past year or so is that we've added a couple of creative and professional writing programs as sister programs to the MFA. So the MFA is a um, it's what they call a terminal degree. So um, as a studio degree, it is um, as intensive as a PhD. So in other words, it's the degree beyond which there's not another degree to earn. Um, 65 credit hours. And um, while that's a, a, a wonderful program and a program that a lot of writers want, it's also not necessarily the program that every writer wants, or it's not accessible to every writer because it's such a big commitment of time and, and money. Um, so what we decided to do was to add a Master of Arts in Writing program. And when we did that, we created a creative writing track, which is um, just like the, the, the MFA uh, in terms of the genres that we offer with fiction and poetry and, and um, writing for TV stage and screen, writing for children, creative nonfiction. Um, so you can do all of those things in the MA, um, but you can also instead focus on professional writing because we felt like that was important too. And um, so that's a two-semester degree. It's it's basically half the, the time. And uh, we also have a, you know, a certificate, which is just a one semester. So we did that because we really believe in the, um, the, the usefulness and the, the importance of, of this kind of study. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't excluding people who would like it, like to try it, but maybe weren't ready to go all in for a 65 credit hour graduate degree. Right. Well, whatever course they choose to uh, follow there, it is it is a wonderful opportunity, and I hope people will check it out. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming to Jacksonville and coming to River of Grass. Oh, thank you so much. I couldn't be happier to be here, and it's wonderful to be here with these friends with whom I have traveled the world. Scribbler's Corner is produced by Brad Kuhn and Associates, a multimedia production company, making authors' dreams come true for almost a decade. BKNA offers a full print shop with design services for everything from books to bookmarks and banners, digital audio recording, video book trailers, and animation, priced for self-published authors and indie publishers. The Corner is also brought to you by the Jacks by Jacks Literary Arts Festival, Jacksonville Writers Writing Jacksonville, now in its sixth year. Writer applications open July 1st for this year's event, which will be held on Saturday, November 16th. And finally, a podcast wouldn't be a podcast without listeners like you. If you like what you're hearing and want me to keep doing it, please do me the favor of subscribing and spreading the word by telling at least one friend about us.